0: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership.
1: Listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. My name is Mark Linsen-Meyer, eking out
2: a meager existence in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin uh, from the heart of Tex Mex country, Boston, Texas. And this is Wes Allwin doing a lot of sleeping in Boston, Massachusetts. I just got
1: the image of, of one of you then following up with me and saying, masturbating from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time <laughs> when we do Kant.
0: i gotta think of some witty things before <laughs> we start the podcast because...
2: there would be much more appropriate things to say on a hume podcast than like something like playing tennis or golf
1: our question for episode 17 is what can we know featuring the mature and concise work by david hume *Enquiry concerning human understanding if you would like a link to that text, please go to our website, partiallyexaminedlife.com. Why, there are many wonderful things at partiallyexaminedlife.com, like some discussion boards. We have a Facebook group. I'm doing a, a blog of my experience reading The Founder. <laughs> oh, my head. God, are you? <laughs> so, so you, can, <laughs> you have not seen that? I, I started an entry uh. in the discussion board of Facebook. So as I listen, I'm actually doing it as an audio book because I don't think I could make myself sit there and read enough of it. I don't know if I can actually get through like 27 discs of it anyway. I'm still opposed to this whole Ayn Rand (laughs) At least as I just... (laughs) Well, I'm thinking if I do this, then we don't have to discuss it as a group. You can just do the episode yourself and entertain callers? (laughs) No, it's in written form is what I'm saying. That's just the Fountainhead, though. I think if we actually did an Ayn Rand episode, we would do it on her philosophical work, not on this piece of philosophical in quotes Mm. literature. I don't know which of those words should be in quotes. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) both of them. Different layers of quotes. Anyway, here's uh, some ground rules for our discussion of Hume. We do not assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. No gratuitous name-dropping. We're interested in ideas, not with fetishizing a bunch of dead philosophers. If we have a point to make, we'll just make it and not say, for instance, you would understand me if only you'd read Arthur Danto's The Transfiguration of My Middle Finger. (laughs) We shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except in cases where not doing so seems like it would be more entertaining. So, Mr. Hume, anybody want to give an intro, a history, uh, whatever?
2: We should say this, that in the tradition, when Hume is taught, he's usually taught as part of a three-pack. To get your British empiricists, you get uh, Locke, Barclay, and Hume as a three-pack. We had opted not to read Locke and Barclay, at least not right now, and just go straight to Hume. So for anybody who's wondering whether they missed the Locke episode, that you have not. But I think Hume does comment quite extensively on Locke and does rely on many of the things that Locke says, even though he puts it in the footnotes. So it's probably worth a bit of review, but I don't think you have to have read it in order to get the force of what he's trying to say. And
1: Yeah, I should uh, say, so we've got a lot of requests, which you can also do on our website, for future episode topics. Many of them being modern people, Sartre, Heidegger, folks like that. And a lot of them it would be very hard for us to do, we felt, without having done some Kant on epistemology in order to do that. Then you have to do a rationalist and an empiricist on epistemology. So that is what we are doing right now for the next three episodes. We're going to, this is our empiricist, right? Guys who think all knowledge comes from experience. And then we're going to do some more Plato, some heavy duty uh, rationalist epistemology, and then we'll do our Kant. And then we'll, the floodgates will be open, (laughs) which doesn't mean we can, we don't have to uh, go back to these folks. In fact, I should say, can I talk a little about Locke? Sure. So, as part of the prep for this, I also looked at his uh, essay concerning human understanding. I mostly skimmed it; it's very, very skimmable. And I, I was just struck with after just looking at uh, Hegel's the logic that it's another one of those books that, and I'm going to blame Aristotle for this. And I, th- I think this points out another like track of future episodes that we have to cover different topics in a row to get people prepared for this. But most of these big books, Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, Hegel's Phenomenology, Hegel's Logic, Sartre's Being in Nothingness, I can't even say anything about being in time. I have no freaking clue, really. Seem to have this like systematic, let's go through everything. First, we must talk about substance, and then we must talk about individuality, and then we must talk about perception and you know just this laundry list you know whatever order they think according to their theory things have to go in so these these system builders and that's mostly what these very fat books have and almost any given section of one of these i feel like is tediously slow is like so picky because we're trying to give You know, the, the very, I'm, now I'm going to describe the simple ideas and then we move up to the complex ideas. And in talking about the simple ideas, I'm going to list them all. So Locke has, has things like this. There are, you know, 300 simple ideas and here they all are. (laughs) I will describe. It's not quite that bad, but it's like, you know, on our perceptions of space and different, oh, there's, there's length within space. There's depth within space. Just the Hume that we picked doesn't do that. It really is a pretty concise book, gets to the point. That's Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. That's from the 1740s. Now, in the 1730s, he wrote this other book, Treaties on Human Nature, which actually has much of that same long-ass structure. So I feel like, again, I'm going to blame Aristotle, that it's Aristotle you know, goes systematically through all these things. That then was multiplied by the scholastics throughout the Middle Ages. So they, they just had volume upon volume of, of these uh, You know, here's our little theory of everything. And then a lot of philosophers after that just felt the need to sort of use that pattern, partly to respond to these past theories. So John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, I mean, I've got an abridged edition here thats still, you know, is almost 500 pages long. (laughs) And it's interesting that, you know, Hume, when he talks about Locke, he has a footnote about Locke here in the one that we read. To be ingenious, I must own it to be my opinion that Locke was betrayed into this question by the schoolmen who, making use of undefined terms, draw out their disputes to a tedious length without ever touching the point in question. A like ambiguity and circumlocution seem to run through that philosopher's reasonings on this as well as most other subjects. <laughs> so Locke was an empiricist. He's called the founder of British empiricism, but still seemed to be very much... You know, was well studied in philosophy, in the scholastics, as they call it. That is, people through the Middle Ages from the Catholic Church who are ultimately using some form of Aristotle for their whole metaphysics, right? The people that condemned Galileo <laughs> and pretty much every other scientific advance that has ever come along.
0: Well, you know, Aristotle didn't write any books, right? Those are just assembled notes from his lectures. Like...
1: Sure, right. But who these people would be reading... Yeah, but I think... Who Locke the, and the Scholastics would be reading. I, the I think Aristotle
0: is less to blame than the academics who <laughs> took him up later. And Yeah, and, and arguably Aristotle is an empiricist as well. Yep. So I think the objection, ironically, for Locke is, you know, Locke still holds on to the idea of substance, for instance, which is something that Hume rejects. Hume is a skeptic in a way that Locke just isn't, which we'll find as we discuss this. I don't know. Should I give a few other biographical notes on here? Sure. Hume? I like the fact that he was friends with Rousseau.
1: But then had a falling out with Rousseau, Yeah, because Rousseau
0: was really paranoid and began to think that Hume was involved in some international conspiracy (laughs) against him or something like that. (laughs) That's brilliant. And uh, hung out in the French salons a lot, and who did he hang out with? Do you guys remember? Well, it said he's friends with Adam Smith, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One other important thing, this critique of causality that we're going to discuss is still a hot topic in the philosophy of science. Right, and he's also of the trio, of the three pack of empiricists. He's generally considered the best, right? He's the one that contemporary philosophers are still excited by. He's had a huge influence in 20th century philosophy of language and philosophy of science, the positivists, and, and others. And also, it's it's important to know he's just such a good writer, right? Sure. Yeah. And the other the other thing to note is when we get to Kant. Kant. I mean, it's amazing how much of Kant's critique of pure reason is just a direct response to Hume and and largely accepts Hume's argument. Kant's famous phrase in the critique is that Hume, quote-unquote, awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers.
2: Hume also, his other major philosophical work, which I guess was published posthumously, was Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which contains some really unbelievably strong and and (laughs) just (laughs) damning critiques of the intelligent design theory and things like that he was definitely argument from design that is the world looks designed i'm sorry yes therefore
1: there must be a god who designed it which is related to intelligent design theory
2: yes i apologize but yeah he's just an interesting guy. back in that day when there were interesting guys like that (laughs) oh whoa (laughs) had interesting lives and did all kinds of crazy (sighs) stuff and He wrote A History of England. uh, Yeah, I was surprised to read that was was
1: more popular than his philosophy
2: at the time. And if I want to say, I seem to recall, I don't remember if this was about humor about Locke, but like one of them also lived until they were like in their 70s, which was very old and played tennis a lot and was like an advocate of being outside and physical activity at the time when, you know, when you were sick, they used to lock you up in a room and the shutters to ward off consumption. Things like that. I I didn't so. read that
1: in my Hume biographical stuff. I mean, maybe that
0: was Locke, but then, it might have been Locke. Just, he died of cancer, intestinal cancer, or uh. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but he was playing but he was tennis the cheer, whole time, cheerful to the end of his. It days. might have been Locke. He, he, <laughs> while he was dying, he organized the publication of um the uh, religious treatise that appeared after he died.
2: It's definitely something that was unique to the. uh I'd say more typical of the English. You don't, you wouldn't get that kind of stuff out of the the Continentals. So. Which, like the anti-religious stuff? No, 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 no. The, like, we need to organize sports <laughs> to improve <laughs> the... <laughs>
0: oh, right. If you're continental, you just smoke that's you exactly right. drink
2: and hang out at
0: cafes. Yes. That. One other biographical note that I thought was interesting was that, first of all, I like his mother's name was Catherine Falconer Home, which I just, I love that name. And she was a single mother. His father died or left, I think, died when he was two and she called David uncommonly wake-minded, which where wake-minded is the word for precocious. I just love that phrase. But um, after he went to, I think if he went to college and studied philosophy for a while, he sort of had a crisis of, oh, this is really impractical, and I should try and do something more worldly. And he took a job as a clerk for a sugar importer, and that didn't work out very well. And so he went back to school and I thought it was interesting in light of our own experience with philosophy. And I think it motivates a lot of his skepticism and his anti-skepticism, ironically, or his anti-system building on the one side and then is being against extreme radical skepticism on the other. So there's that sort of pragmatic streak. Well, I thought I saw
1: something in the biographical stuff as well about even within academia that he just like couldn't
0: bear the classes that were not philosophy. (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. Tolerably, I don't know. Also, he never got an academic post. He never became a professor because of the controversial nature of his uh, his writing. So we should jump for that, and that's sort of why
1: you know Hume. He's not like the most. I, I was going to say he's the most extreme of these empiricists, but Barclay is like extreme to the point of silliness in a different way to the point of saying that the material world just doesn't exist and everything is ideas and so he's but definitely Hume is an advance beyond Locke there's an orderly advance there in terms of breaking away from the scholastics and you can see as far as religion goes why you would run into problems because the whole point of empiricism is that we can only know things that we get from experience we don't experience religious matters therefore we can't know anything about religious matters BAM! BAM! <laughs> Done. But yet yeah, Locke doesn't think that. Locke like when I was looking through essay concerning human understanding, he supports the uh I mean he has an argument against the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is the one that Descartes uses in the Meditations, but he believes the uh cosmological argument, which is that, oh, everything has a cause, there must be a first cause, that's God. Like he buys that just fine. And the reason Hume does not have that available to him is exactly a matter of his analysis of causality which is i guess our main topic today. Okay. Should we just give at least his version of empiricism in the first place?
2: Well, I'm looking back over my notes and I'm wondering whether we need to even start from the beginning, you know, the different species of philosophy talking about moral philosophy and No, not that. Yeah, part. I think we can even though it's there's some really nice poetic parts there. The feelings of our heart, the agitation of our passions, the vehemence of our affections dissipate all its conclusions and reduce the profound philosopher to mere plebeian he's got more like that okay origin of ideas so he uses some slightly more technical or i should say more precise language than Locke does but basically what he says is look there's a difference between perceptions which would be something that you are experiencing right now in the present and your memory of a perception that you had in the past or your anticipation of a perception you might have in the future in your imagination. He yeah. says... Per- right, impressive. right, you're He's already... That. That. This is funny. No, 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 no. He starts off using the word perception before he does the definition. But I think perceptions, right, are all the kind of intake, right? Jeez, uh, you guys, Sorry. man. <laughs> just hang on just one second. So he says, look, memory and imagination can mimic but you cannot reach the force and vivacity of the present experience. So his criteria, this is important, is that force or vivacity of your experience basically tells you that you're experiencing something in the present or you're not. And so he says this is true for all perceptions. And he puts in here love, anger, pain, color, all of those things. So he says, okay, let me, let me be more precise. He says there's basically two different classes of perceptions of the mind that are divided by virtue of their degrees of force or vivacity. One is thoughts or ideas, which would be memory or imagination. And the other is what he calls lively impressions, which are present experiences where you see, hear, smell, feel, have emotional, you know, that sort of thing.
1: Right. It's interesting that he doesn't say just like sense impressions, Cause he's leaving it open. Like what sense exactly is it that gets at our sense that you're afraid of something like he doesn't right, exactly. he doesn't commit can, himself to analyzing that as, Oh, I get that through, right. you know, the touch of my the own heat of my body or the sound, you know, any of that crap, which no. Locke definitely does. Like he's all it's the senses, you know, talking about sense data and things like that. Hume doesn't seem to use that language. No, I
0: mean, for him, Well, sense data are, are, are one kind of impression. And then there's, Hate and love and desire and will and all that
2: stuff. Yeah. Like you could have the experience of fear, like have somebody threaten your life and have the experience of fear. And that counts as a lively impression in the same way that like seeing something does. It's a present experience that's delivered, quote unquote, through the senses. Right. And finding that you believe something is the same kind of thing, right?
1: Like I see there's a book in front of me. I have an impression of the book. And then I also have an impression of my thought. Maybe I'm jumping ahead here that I believe that there's a book there. Yeah,
2: you are jumping ahead. Okay. (laughs) Things get (laughs) complex very quickly. (laughs) But one of the things I really like about this is I like this force and vivacity. This is the same move that Descartes makes to throw back to a previous podcast, you know, when he says that the way you distinguish between dreaming and reality is sort of the force and vivacity of the impressions. And it's something that I still believe myself. I like that quite a bit. It's just he builds a pretty big edifice on on top of that. I don't know.
1: It seems when it's put that way, if it's really just that's the only way we know whether we're having an actual experience now or just thinking of something is that it's more lively. Like he gives examples that make sense. Like when you get hurt, you experience that pain a lot more intensely than you do the memory of that pain. And it's a qualitatively different. You can tell the difference. You can tell that you're not experiencing the pain now, but it doesn't follow from that, that every single idea will be less lively than every single impression. There are plenty of impressions that I have that I'm only vaguely aware of certain things. You know, I'm getting some impression of the air around me right now, but unless I'm paying attention to it, I, it just barely even registers at all. If, But yet, that compared with my memory of some trauma I underwent, you know, in a nightmare or something, force and liveliness doesn't capture the difference between those.
2: No, I agree. But what he's saying is that the idea or the memory or your imagination of any particular thing Will always be less forceful and vivacious than your actual lively impression of that thing. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a difference between the force and vivacity of various impressions and thoughts and ideas. I think also interesting, Locke specifically, I think, says that the ideas are
1: copies or echoes of the lively impressions. But can Hume really say that? He can't say that. Hume, right, okay, copies. Hume could say there's copies, but Locke can actually say, you know, we have these moment-to-moment impressions that then cause the ideas in our heads, right? Whereas Hume doesn't want to bring cause in there,
0: right? Right. The impressions don't cause the ideas. I, well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's
2: well, a, th- that's This is going to be the
1: theme that we're, <laughs> we're finding running through this, is that Hume wants to give a description of experience that's all just like we're sitting back watching a parade of images, and, and I mean, that's just an analogy. They're not all visual, but any any then theory we have about what's going on behind those images or what's causing the images or anything like that, that's all outside of our experience and something that in some strong sense, we can't really know anything about. Whereas for Locke, he really still thinks, even though he's an empiricist, that we are perceiving objects in the world that we don't know much about the objects in the world, but surely those objects in the world are causing our impressions. He definitely goes so far as that.
0: Right, for Hume, object is already an abstract, since an object is composed of many impressions. Should we go over the critique of causality? Well, we have to do
2: a little bit more to get there, I think. So you've raised sort of one clear criticism, right? Which is that your sort of present experience isn't mediated into a thought. He can't have you having a thought or an idea about a lively impression. Thoughts and ideas are things that take place after the fact or independent of the experience, that the experience is somehow visceral and direct. So that's one thing we have to consider. And then, of course, the second thing is that in his notion, and in this empiricist notion, is that what experiences provide you are what we might call the kind of lively impressions that can be resolved or that create simple ideas. And that what consciousness does or what you do in your mind is that you take all these simple ideas that you get from experience And you combine them in various ways to come up with compound or more complex ideas that are really various combinations and forms of basic, simple, lively impressions and experiences. And that's why Locke goes to all the pains of trying to enumerate what all these simple experiences are, is that he's going to have to use that as the foundation and say that, well, anything that you can think is somehow reducible to all these basic, simple impressions of Mm -hmm. color, sound space whatever those happen to be
0: so give an example of a complex
2: so i think in the text his example is is something about a golden mountain so he says in your imagination you can imagine a golden mountain but really what you're doing is just combining the ideas of gold that you've had an experience of and mountain that you've had an experience of and you're creating this thing in your imagination called a golden mountain which of course doesn't exist anywhere So that's meant to answer the question of how can you have an idea of something that you haven't actually experienced? It's that you have these combinations of ideas that were based on experience. Another argument that's given in favor of this is that if you have a deficiency in one of your sense capabilities, like if you're blind, if you were born blind, Mm -hmm. you would never know what color was that you can't come to the idea of color without having experience of color. You can't come to the idea of sound without having the experience of sound and, and so forth. If you've never tasted Mindaloo, you might be able to combine a bunch of ideas of other tastes if you had all the requisite taste put together, but the reality is, is that you need to have the experience.
1: Now, I'm trying to determine, looking back here, because he's, he goes by this pretty quick, if these initial impressions have to be simple because it seems a lot of the the examples yeah, that he gives is. like he, when he talks about how we combine things like a mountain itself is not simple like that's a lot of you don't just perceive there's the mountain there's a lot of background that goes into recognizing that something is a mountain separating it from the surrounding landscape, that, you know, it has a back. It seems there's a bunch of impressions packed together that go into mountain.
0: Yeah, I think the mountain is already an object, is already conceptual and goes beyond mere impressions. And if you think about the role of causality in, in our very conception of objects, I think they're not mere fleeting impressions in the, in the way that we've talked about. So even to perceive a mountain, for instance, your eyes might scan different parts of the mountain, have different impressions, and would have to sequence those over time and use ideas or memories of previous impressions and collect all that together. Yep. So there you get a complex object, which is composed of impressions, but it's necessarily an idea, I think.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think we might just be getting in a little more detail than this particular text go in, and I I can't say whether Treatise of Human Nature goes into this level of detail. I know that Locke's essay... You know, really tries to deal with all this stuff very specifically, and that's why he gets so basic. Like Already I'm wondering, from what you were saying, Wes, how language plays into this. When we both say mountain, we presumably refer to the same thing. We presumably know what we're talking about because we have impressions that go with that. But it's not clear that we're going to have the same impressions that go with that. I have a different mountain in mind than you do or different parts, or maybe I've never even climbed a mountain and you have. So there's going to be a bunch of different impressions, but yet we can all use that word with facility and make true statements about it that we can recognize as true
0: or not true. Yeah. Between us. Well, well, mountain is already, and he talks about this later on, it's already conceptual and as a concept, it doesn't exactly refer to any particular impression, right? It's like a variable. Remember when he talks about, uh, what is it, a dog or something? And he, and he says, you know, it's not like dog or horse refers to some platonic ideal. Uh, the essence of horse. But yeah. rather, right, when we use that word, we'll think of some particular image of a horse, for instance, and then will recognize that that could vary in certain ways. We might change the color, we might change this or that. So in a way, anytime you have a word, a piece of language, for something that's conceptual, it's not referring directly to any particular impression mm-hmm. or collection of impressions. Which is fine. Yeah.
2: I think that this is probably one of those places where, you know, you could go into a, an inquiry into what constitutes a simple. This is reminding me of that painful, painful, painful (laughs) discussion about atomic facts and Wittgenstein. But I think one way we can give him an out here is to say that, I mean, obviously nobody experiences the world as a simple. You experience the world already as a compound and complex set of impressions, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. color, there's shape, there's movement, there's light. It's just over time in your experiences you are able to start to distinguish particular things and find some are similar to each other, some are not similar to each other, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how you kind of get down to, you know, there's some informal set of symbols. So for example, we might use a term rock as a simple to describe, but we would have had experiences of thousands and thousands of rocks before we finally, and we would understand when we say it. That we're not referring to any particular rock that has any particular set of characteristics per se, just that there is a simple called a rock that works for us. Because that's the other thing is that Hume is ultimately going to be pragmatic about this because he's trying to describe the way people actually function in the world and not hypothesize about the way they should. Mm-hmm. Or, so it works for people to have an idea of a rock. And the rock is pretty basic, and we can think about a wall that's made of a bunch of rocks put together, or you can think about throwing a rock at somebody, or you can think about all these different things, but a rock is a rock, and so practically speaking, we call that a simple. For example, I'm not saying that that's what he. I don't. I don't I'm think. Not, well, a I'm simple. I,
1: actually, I'm not. I'm, I think I follow Seth here. That I don't think he's committed to saying that we perceive things as simple. I'm flipping through, just in case I was not clear about this before. Hume has a, a longer book, A Treatise of Human Nature, that was written about ten years before The Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. The Inquiry of Human Understanding is a reworking of the first third of the Treatise of Human Nature. And it's quite a bit shorter, even than that first third. And the Treatise on Human Nature does address more point by point Locke's essay concerning human understanding, but still does not get into simple ideas versus complex ideas in the way that Locke does.
2: Well, I'm not trying to make an argument in favor of rocks being simples per se. I think what I'm saying is that the philosopher can spend time resolving. Complex experience down into simples and say ultimately, it all comes from experience, even if you have to parse it out mm-hmm. it 's still a function of experience that you have space, color, whatever it is. Common people aren 't going to go to that level of detail, and they don 't need to right. The human understanding works at a certain level without the need it 's founded on these simple ideas, and that 's how you can right. have a memory of something in the past and break out like when you remember something. If you think about, let's say, for example, you know, the first time you met your wife or something like that, you're going to remember certain aspects of the experience, but you're not going to remember everything that was happening to you at the time, the entire complex of the color and the sound sure. and the temperature and all that kind of stuff. And I think he's saying is that over time, as human beings begin to see regularities in things, as they grow older and they begin to experience... They just use those conceptions. They use those impressions that they get to form ideas. And then they can have memories of those experiences and break it out. Or they can imagine things in the future. And then philosophers can spend time deciding about what those basic fundamental principles are. But everything comes from experience in one way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah. But I think uh, it's important just to... every, Every impression is a simple that leads to a simple idea. And the rest of it is complexes ideas can be complexes of simple ideas and the reason why that is important is that association which we'll talk about in a moment including especially causality is implicated in anything that we think of as an experience of an object or something that we would call a full-scale experience the impressions and simple ideas are like the fleeting little Bits and pieces that have to be assembled into what we would call experience. So.
1: I do have a quote here. This is actually from the Treatise of Human Nature, which I will not quote anymore. But I just, I knew he went in a little more depth here near the beginning of it. He remarks that ideas and impressions always appear to correspond to each other. And then says, upon a more accurate survey, I find that I've been carried away too far by the first appearance, that I must make use of the distinction of perceptions into simple and complex to limit this general decision that all our ideas and impressions are resembling. I observe that many of our complex ideas never had impressions that corresponded to them, that many of our complex impressions never exactly copied in ideas. I can imagine to myself uh, such a city as the New Jerusalem, whose pavement is gold and walls are rubies, though I never saw any such. I have seen Paris, but shall I affirm that I can form such an idea of that city as will perfectly resemble all its streets and houses in their real and just proportions? So what he gets out of this is...
0: This just, what we're reading now is meant to be a correction of... (laughs) No, he disavowed the treatise, right? Just not right. to say that we should take that fully seriously, but this is meant to be the mature. So some things are different. Right, right. Entry. No, he did.
1: It's not just shortening. He's like, he listened to criticism and he refined it and tried to put it in the best possible way. Still, I yeah. you know, it's interesting. It was only now in going back to read this this time that I sort of got the distinction between the two books. I don't know if I just didn't pay attention to that, but like I read plenty of the treatise in various classes at the time like people still read that they don't just throw that away and read the inquiry no no no, i'm not saying yeah. um and i think part of it is because he gets more into these distinctions which maybe he decided later just don't matter that much
0: <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode preview i know it stops just when things were getting really good so please go download the full episode you can purchase it in the music section of the itunes store or at partially examined slash store where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our hefty back catalog, a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to partialexaminelifecom slash membership for details.